No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Well, we're getting closer, but we're still not there. It's possible that the days have stopped getting shorter, but it's also possible that that hasn't happened and they're continuing to get shorter and that we're just a, a day. In any event, regardless of that, we are always a day closer to the end of the world. Yes. So that's a great thing to think over breakfast. And in this uh, networked landscape, we're, a- we're able to utilize our technology to bring in people uh, smarter than us to make us appear smarter than we are ourselves. We're super excited to have the director of blended and networked learning at Washington State University. Vancouver uh, has a long, lustrous history. Uh, I know him personally as well, but I'm really interested in what's been going on in his life. Now, I mean, I'm interested in everything that's been going on in your life, Mike, but really interested to talk about things that you've been working on within the last year or so. Mike Caulfield, welcome to the end of the world. Oh, well, well thanks for having me. Maybe it'd be worth you giving a quick background of yourself. I know that you've worked in education technology, um, been a political blogger, uh, also worked at Open Coursewell itself. How do you give the elevator pitch for your background. <laughs> I have a really convoluted work history. Uh, so it, it, um, it, it does, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, elevator pitch neatly. Uh, but I think if, if we were, uh, to talk about the, you know, what, what we are now calling civic online literacy side, uh, it goes really back to my political blogging, um, and, and actually, uh, being um, I was actually trolled by my um, my congressman's uh, policy director. Uh, so, Wait, tell that story uh, real quick. I don't, I don't think I know yeah, that one. Do you know that story? No. Um, yeah. So I had a I, you know I, I got upset about the Iraq War in 2004, and I, I volunteered for the Kerry campaign, and we thought we were going to win, and we lost, and then and then. Um, in around 2006, everybody said, well, you know, all is lost and, and uh, there's no chance for, for Democrats to win. We had a, we had a uh, representative in our district named Charlie Bass, and people said, oh, this guy is unbeatable. And for whatever reason, I, I created a blog uh, called uh, NHO2 Progressive. That was our district. And, um, and uh, just started writing about Charlie Bass's record you know, on, on these issues. Everybody thought he was a moderate, but I started to dig into the procedural votes and, and, uh, you know, and talk about what his actual voting record was, which wasn't actually moderate at all. I mean, the thing that shocked me was he was actually in support of the whole Terry Schiavo mess, right? Which for people, for, you know, for a person people say is, you know, is, is not a cultural conservative. That's, that's pretty culturally conservative. So um, I'm, I'm realizing now, like half of the listeners here may not even remember the Terry Schiavo mess. But um, in any case, I, I started this blog, and this this uh, guy started showing up in the comments named Indy New Hampshire, and um, and he'd always have a lot of information, and he would kind of do what we call concern trolling. I don't know if people are familiar with that term, but 
it's, you know, trolling, you go and you try to disturb a conversation by being aggressive and getting people to fight one another. Concern trolling, you try to add an air of, um, you know, I don't know, you just want to make, you just want to use comments to make it seem like what the author of the post is proposing is, is, is very radical and kind of scary. Like, you know, I agree with you. I'm a strong Democrat all my life, you know, and I'm rooting for the Dems, you know, but I'm really concerned that this approach, you know, so you kind of do that in the comments, right? Mm. And their concerns don't actually match, you know, concerns that would be the concerns of any Democrat Democrat or anybody in that in-group. And so this guy kept coming on and making these comments and even said things like, you know, maybe you keep on focusing on Charlie Bass, but... The real, the real issues are in the Democratic Party. We have to make sure we have a strong Democratic Party. So, you, you know, we should be sending our money to primary Joe Lieberman and kick him out of the Democratic Party. You know, is I, I just thought, well, this is weird. So I, I, I checked the, um, I checked the uh, IP that was associated with the, you know, I looked at all the times that the comments happened, and then I checked the IP, IPs on the site at the time that all those comments happened and cross-referenced them. And I did a reverse IP lookup on 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 this person's IP, and it came back uh, U.S. House Sergeant of Arms, <laughs> which turns out to be the router uh, at the <laughs> dun, dun, dun. at the U.S. House of Representatives. And I thought, you know, at first I thought, you know, this is just this is just going to be a stupid intern, yeah. intern yeah. right? You know, so uh, you know, I talked to some people. Uh, I, I talked to uh, an, uh, we, there were three other major political bloggers in New Hampshire at the time talking about the race, and I, I, one of the other ones had the same guy coming around. Talked to her, and she had some connections to Daily Coast, and we did a big uh, front page story on Daily Coast that said, you know, uh, Bass staffer busted um, about about this, and. Um, and you know, and then the press started asking for comment. Who is this person? And it turned out to be his. I don't know if you know the structure of uh, of uh, staffing at in in a in a house office, but um, you basically have your chief of staff, and then the second person in command. You know, you have your representative, chief of staff. The second person in command is the policy director. He was his policy director, wow. <laughs> uh, who was promptly um, who's promptly uh, promptly resigned. You know, and uh, and it became a big issue. It was called Bloggergate in the New Hampshire uh, <laughs> press because everything has to be a gate. Uh, but you know, so I, I got interested in in turn. I got interested in this issue of what do people need to know to um, you know engage civically online and and uh, with Askew, you um, with a project uh, out of Wayne State University, uh, uh, Keene State. When I worked at Keene State, was one of the founding members of uh, the e-citizenship initiative, which was looking at these things. And, and uh, you know, we we did that for um, and did a bunch of projects around that for uh, four four years or so. But people just kind of weren't fully getting it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then so the election happened, and uh, a few days after the election, I called up the people at Askew and said, "Hey, you know what? I think people are ready to get this now. Um, we should do something again." And uh, they said, yeah. And so, so that's that's where the digital polarization initiative uh, uh, comes out with. You can thank uh, Tad Furtado 
the policy director of Charlie Bass for uh, <laughs> everything that has happened. What, what I really like in that story is the idea that that often it's not that we care about whether the attention is good attention or bad attention. It's just attention. And that, <laughs> and that makes it all work. Yeah, it does. Right. I want to I wanna skip ahead to November 7th. Uh, 2016. And you wrote a blog post. <clears throat> and I want to read the, sort of the introductory oh, paragraph to this blog post. I'm, it says, I'm a little worried now. <laughs> it says, I've decided to write a book before the year is out. I've decided this because I think the most pressing current issue for open pedagogy practitioners in the U.S. right now is how we address a social media environment that seems to be bringing out many of our worst demons. And I think several years of research on this issue have given me some insights into this here. What got you thinking about that, particularly at that specific moment in time? Yeah, so um, you, you remember, I'm sure, Adam, that I was working on a bunch of sort of 10 years out technological experiments in how we how we create a better online environment that is, you know, is, is more informative and investigative and less driven by anger and um, polarization and so forth. And so uh, things like Wikidy and things like Federated Wiki and, and, and some of those experiments. And um, I, th- what the election did for me um, was, was make me, uh, I, it, it, I love working on things that are 10 years out. <laughs> I really, really do. And in another world and in another time, uh, that's what I'd continue to do. But what the election crystallized for me is we need, the, like, we need this stuff now. And we need this stuff, you know, in ways that maybe aren't quite as gee whiz cool, um, but are, are really practical and really and really down to earth. Uh, and so and so that's what I started to work on. And, and um, I was lucky enough early in the effort to do that, to uh, um, cross paths with um, Sam Weinberg down at Stanford. Uh, I'd written a um, blog post on some of the research that Sam had done into how students struggle to separate fact from fiction on the web. And, um, and he had, he had written me back and said, you know, you're, you're one of the few people that I think actually gets the, the research we're doing. We, we should talk. And, um, and he led me to, he led me to think about this in, in a different way in terms of, in terms of the, the, the sorts of skills uh, that students need, or in terms of the presentation of, of skills. And I don't know how deeply theoretical we want to get about that, but um, you know, in the, the big thing is that we tend to have a sort of rhetorician view of, of media literacy that, that students will look at documents and recognize patterns in the documents and attributes of the documents um, and, and dig deeply into these, into these um, you know, artifacts. Uh, but that, that's, that's weird for current media literacy for a few reasons, uh, you know, the first reason is that we're looking at a hundred headlines a day, you know, and are we going to do that process with a hundred headlines a day? Uh, the second reason is that when we come in to these things, we're already fired up, we're already biased, we're already the game is like our leaning on a particular headline or something that we look at is already is already kind of imprinted on us when we start to look at a document, and so. Our analysis of whether that's true or false is already horribly tinted um, by our initial reaction on that. 
And then, of course, you have these, this environment, this media environment, which takes all of those, um, you know, all of those bad reactions of uh, us and, and, and dials them up to 11. And so the thing that, that Sam really uh, um, helped me realize was that, you know, what you actually want students to do is you want them to have a toolkit of action on these documents. And you don't actually, I mean, this will sound so weird, and, and, and I'm sure people will push back, um, you know, um, and you, you guys might push back. But in some ways, you don't want students to think during the first couple minutes or first couple, first 90 seconds they're looking at a document. I know that may sound really, really weird, but, you know, they're coming into this process. Any thinking they do at the point they come into this is just going to be motivated reasoning anyway. They're all fired up. So, so they, they, you're just, they're just going to dig themselves a deep, deeper hole. So what we're trying to do with the process that we're promoting is we're trying to give them a set of tools that perform a set of actions. And it's, it's based on, I don't know if you guys know Geigerinzer's, um, um, oh, it's not actually his fast and frugal trees. It's part of his toolkit. Uh, there's, there's this concept called fast and frugal trees, uh, which is used by uh, Geigerinzer and um, it was originally developed by Laura... Uh, I can't remember French name, um, but the idea of that is that we actually we actually become much more logical when we go through these very quick decision trees that don't involve a lot of invested thought, uh, and then and then move on. So if you go to your doctor, right, your doctor doesn't look at you and say, "Oh, you know, what do I feel about like give me every symptom you have, and I will diagnose." Um, your uh, your your um, you know, your disease. What you'll find is that doctors have been trained to go through a kind of a a, a quick flowchart of, okay, well you're coming in here. You have pain in the upper right right you know right quadrant. Do you, does your family have a history of X? Yes, no. And if it's yes, then we go okay. Let's let's dig deep into that. Uh, if it's no, we go down to the next thing. We say, okay, well, no family history of that. Uh, did you, you know, was there any recent trauma to the, you know? So you go through a series of of decisions that actually that actually are almost sort of like a, a bit of an autopilot, right? And um, and what they do is they very quickly get you to the area in the concerns that you need to look at, and then you look at them. But if you look at a person, right? If you look at uh, a person with a bunch of symptoms. And you don't do that, you're likely to be you're likely to be affected by the race of the person, the gender. You know this this whole idea, for example, that um, doctors tended not to diagnose uh, uh, heart symptoms in females because just their bias is well, you know, women don't get heart attacks, men get heart attacks. Uh, but you go through this quick decision process; it kind of helps you rise above your cog, you know, your your um, biases. That's kind of in a way. It, it 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 sounds kind of reminiscent of the that that um, I can't remember what it's called, but like the the list of procedures for medical for medical procedures that people were skipping the steps of all the time. You know, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So so the the, yeah. the Otto Gawande uh, stuff that he covers in in his checklist manifesto is, right. is like that, and uh, yeah, and, and you can do it for these diagnostics as well. And the thing is, it's not it's not a representativeness checklist. It's not does this thing resemble X, right? Which we refer to as a representativeness heuristic, right? Because the problem with representativeness heuristics of does this look like fake news? 
does this look false? Does this look biased? Is that our perception of them is so warped, we can't actually see, we can't actually see it. We can see it when it's something that we disagree with, but we can't see it when it's something we agree with. So it gets warped. Sequences of quick actions like this tend not to get warped as 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 much. And so, so we we focused on uh, we focused on that approach, a, a very action oriented, uh, you know, investigative toolbox oriented uh, approach to. Um, uh, uh, civic online reasoning. So, so I want to continue this narrative. So you're working in these 10 year out technologies. You, you start to get the feeling that something's happening here. Uh, the day before the election, you sort of pin this, like, I want to write this book. Um, no, this is on 11-7 on 11-8. Something happens. It's a Thursday. I can't quite remember, but there's this really interesting <laughs> thing that happens where on it, on 11.11, there's an NPR article that comes out, and it's talking about Mark Zuckerberg's reaction to what's happening. Oh, because, right, 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 Because yeah. they're starting to, you know, to ask, what role did social media uh, play into this? And then you write two days later where you have leveraged the, the Facebook Social Graph API to sort of prove out the idea that fake news is more viral than real news. Walk me through those those yeah. those those few days, sort of what's going on, you know, through your head. Are you are you also at that time seeing Facebook as a as a potential player in this or Yeah, yeah. So I mean it's just one of those things. You know, I um uh I I I saw Mark Zuckerberg saying that. Well, he said, you know, fake news is only a small percentage of, of stuff on the site and I thought, well that's that's ridiculous. You know, that doesn't match with my experience at all. And and uh, I I um tried to figure out if there was some way if I could see how much these stories I had seen in the last weeks of the election were shared. And and there was. There's this open API that usually is just used to, you know, if you want to show on your website how many times your article was shared on Facebook, it uses this API to display a number. Uh, so it's, it wasn't really put there, I think, for research purposes, but it served it. So I, I went and I pulled... Um, a bunch of those articles, and they pulled the share statistics on a bunch of articles from uh, traditional media. I did this all on like a Sunday afternoon um, uh, on my couch, and um, and it showed that 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 the the fake stories were far more viral. And this was this was a couple days before BuzzFeed did a, a much deeper dive uh, into it. And so it turned it turned out to be um, one of the first maybe the first attempt to debunk what Mark Zuckerberg had said, like, uh, um, like the day before. Uh, and it got picked up by, uh, it got just retweeted by Kevin Drum, um, who's a Mother Jones uh, columnist. Uh, I, I posted it, someone retweeted it um, from my network, and then Kevin Drum retweeted it. And then Jay Rosen, uh, who's a, you know, a famous person and, and, um, media literacy and media critique, uh, retweeted it. And then, um, yeah, then reporters started calling from, you know, um, wired and, um, you, you mentioned, today. you mentioned Buzzfeed <laughs> and that they cited your blog post. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they did. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, they are, I mean, I have to say, I mean, it's not as if, um, it's not as if, uh, um, you know, Buzzfeed was, was late to this game. Buzzfeed, uh, has had um, BuzzFeed were, were some of the first people on this. I mean, um, 
if you look at Craig Silverman's work in 2014, he's looking at fake news more in 2014 through the lens of junk news. Uh, but they they have a really really deep knowledge of this, and so, you know, did my thing have any impact? You know, in some ways, I, I think, you know, it, it started uh, it started the conversation a couple of days earlier. But BuzzFeed was was already on this stuff, and they they had a they had an approach they were working on, and so I think in the in the long term, um, you know, it, it didn't have any effect above and beyond what BuzzFeed was going to do a couple of days later. Um, but it did get me into the conversation, um, and, and that was um, that turned out just to be really useful. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. So BuzzFeed, you mentioned um, Vox and TechCrunch pick it up. Yeah. And then, and then you end up on the Sunday Today Show, is that correct? Yeah, it's just a little blurb. You know, one of the things you don't realize is they, um, you know, reporters, <laughs> um, reporters really want, like, you know, four sentences about something in a segment. And, um, and then they interview you for an hour to get those four sentences, <laughs> which are probably the exact sentences they, they knew they wanted at the beginning. They're just waiting for you to say them, <laughs> but they can't, you know, ethically, they can't say, can you now say something? Can you now say this? So, so uh, yeah. So they took an hour worth of interview uh, and they, they, they condensed it down to like uh, four sentences. Um, but you know, uh, uh, whatever they were good for sentences. I, I think they, they the sentence they really liked was it, it's time for Facebook to get beyond the Band-Aid solutions, you know, and 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 really address this problem. They liked that sentence, and so that, that's the sentence that made it. And I think it was probably the best sentence in the interview anyway. So I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Well, I think they can prompt you. It's just that that'll end up on John Oliver, right? With, <laughs> right, with both right. the prompt and the response. Right. right. Yeah. So yeah. At the time, it seemed like Facebook was was playing a big deer deal, but now it seems like you've you've really sort of broadened your scope. Of it's not just about social media, it's not just about fake news per se, but it's really this entire media literacy approach that we probably need to be rethinking. Yeah, so I think it's it's really multi pronged, and and I, it's really easy for people on the theoretical side to say, oh well, you know, you know, media literacy isn't you know, the, the, the big issue, the big issue is the platforms or the platforms aren't the big issue. The big issue is the ad tech or, you know, it's, you know, it's just all of the above, you know, so what, what, you know, with any social problem you're trying to address, you, you have to say, well, what is the problem? What is going to help solve the problem? And, and what am I in my current position with my current network, my current knowledge and my current skills? What, what, what is, what am I most able to affect? And you've got to triangulate that and try to do something that will have a beneficial effect that, that intersects with uh, your ability to, to deliver, um, you know, an intervention. And, and so, and so this ends up being, this ends up being, um, being my piece is, is I, I think people still have to go after Facebook uh, um you know, particularly the way Facebook is dealing with some of this stuff overseas, um, but, but you know, also in, in prep for the the, the uh, next uh, couple elections, um, I think people still have to talk about the broader issues with these platforms and ad tech and so forth. But my my interest right now and what I think I have a uh, I think we have a method that works that actually that actually works and it it doesn't it doesn't it you know it 
it, it can't you you can't learn four you know four steps to something that are going to you know make you an expert in in everything that's written and help you never fall for fake news ever um, or I, you know Claire Water Wardle says we shouldn't be using fake news but so let's say disinformation and misinformation um, but I do think I do think we have a we have a we have a model that we can teach students that will a um, decrease their their level of, of highly effective you know affective like filled with affect uh, posting um, b I think decrease their cynicism about traditional media sources I don't know if you know this but millennials only 11% trust the media so we, we have this weird idea in media literacy where I don't know where it comes from but this weird idea oh students come in and they're so gullible and they trust everything the media says yeah it's, that's not the case the, the biggest problem with students is cynicism about the media they don't they trust everything in this sort of undifferentiated way so we have a model that addresses I think uh, the cynicism, uh, and we have a model that helps students very quickly filter out the worst offenders and the worst bad actors uh, from their media environment. And if we can do that, um, you know, with a with this 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 four uh, four move model, um, we should we should be doing that. What, you know, it can make a positive change. What, what is it that you think will like if you were uh, dealing directly with a student with this model? What is it that gets them to buy into what you're proposing? What does it get? It gets them to buy in. Um, I think so. Here's here's what I here, you know. This is this is just from working with students, and it's not on the basis of any research or anything like that. But I think students are cynical and feel profoundly disempowered uh, on the internet. And if you ask students, they feel like everything is junk. Nothing is, you know, you can't trust anything. And some people enjoy that feeling. Uh, but I think for most people, that's not really a good emotional place to be. And so we come in and we, instead of saying, oh, well, you got to dig deep into this and, 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 and um, whatever, we say, we're going to show you, we're going to show you how to take 90 seconds to two minutes, okay, to move from being, you know, absolutely helpless in the face of this onslaught of manipulation to being, you know, partially, moderately, minimally helpless in the face of this onslaught of <laughs> you know but but we're gonna we're well, gonna that's, get that's progress so <laughs> yeah in in, in in the important thing the important thing i can't stress this enough um is we don't want to take away students candy right like there's so there's so much there's all these emotional issues around misinformation one of the biggest ones is oh so you're going to come in and you're going to show me the reasons why everything i want to post i can't post right you know, like how, you know, that's not a really great sell to students. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, all this stuff comes in. It's like, oh, I got to share this with my friends. And you're going to say, oh, you know, stop, slow down, look at it. And, you know, you're not going to be able to post it, you know, because it's going to, it's always going to turn out the bear was photoshopped in, et cetera. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and we don't want to, we want to make sure that we still preserve that reward for students. So one of the things that we're doing, for example, with, with our model is you go through the, you go through the four steps, right? You, you uh, check for previous work, you trace uh, information to the source, you read laterally, uh, and you circle back if you, if you get lost. Um, 
students can often do this, you know, and I'm not exaggerating. Students can do this in 90 seconds. I sound like I'm on an infomercial, <laughs> but it's true. Students can do it in 90 seconds. In 90 seconds? <laughs> in 90 seconds. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much would you pay for this? But I'm still not done. I'm still not done. As little as 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> No, so, so students can do this, and at the end of it, one of the things we do when we say uh, um, a check for previous work is you get a story. Sometimes it's a story with a kernel of truth on it, but it's just got an absolute bullshit headline, right? This isn't a, this is isn't like a PG show. No, no, right? this is okay. fine. So it's got an absolute. I mean, I use the term. I use the term like in its in its uh, scholarly context. Te technical. Absolute, right. technical <laughs> technically an absolute bullshit headline <laughs> on a story that has, has some truth. So, uh, one example, uh, came up recently is there was a story that popped up in my feed that said, you know, Rupert Murdoch's home destroyed in the California wildfires. And, you know, Oh my gosh, there's so much wonderful schadenfreude I have in that moment that I want to retweet that, right? <laughs> uh, because, you know, here's the person that, you know, possibly more than any man on the planet has has stopped, you know, um, uh, action against climate change. And their, their home is destroyed by California wildfires, which are somewhat, you know, influenced by climate change, right? Uh, so I'm going to retweet that. Okay, now if you came and you said, hey, you know, Angel pops up and says, hey, Mike, Stop and, and, and read this and think about whether it's inflammatory and whether you can trust the source and, and so forth. And, you know, I'm just going to shove you, you know, like the, those old movies where the, the good angel comes up and tries to talk and the person just kind of shoves them aside. They don't want to listen. Um, that's that's the kind of scene it's going to be. Right. You know, that someone, you know, you don't want to hear that when you when you do when you see this. But, you know, in our method, we say, look, you don't know this source. If you want to retweet this story, find a more reliable source to retweet. And so, you know, you you uh, select the the headline of it. You right click. You go to Google Search. You, you click Google News. You look and you see the L.A. Times has a story on this. You you scan the L.A. Times and you find, oh, actually, Murdoch's home was not destroyed. Uh, some of his vineyards were burned. The home in the winery seemed to be okay. And you retweet the L.A. Times story, and you say. You know, Murdoch's uh, vineyards, uh, Mur Mur Rupert Murdoch's vineyards on fire, you know. And, and, and so now you've actually taken a piece of misinformation or disinformation uh, and you've, you've gone and found a better piece of information. You've, you've retweeted that better piece of information and you, you're, you're kind of you're cleaning up the information environment, right? You're, you're uh, bit by bit cleaning up the information environment by, by tweeting something uh, or posting something or Instagramming something um, slightly better than than what came to you. Um, and, you know, I don't think everybody needs to do that, but I think if you could, you know, if in a class you could get 10% of students um, thinking about social media in that way, not just how do I pass this on, but how do I be part of the process that, that actually cleans this up a bit, um, you know, I don't know. I think I think you get I think you get to a sort of herd immunity pretty quick if you have a few people looking out for this.
You know, there's a there's a characteristic inside of that. When you mentioned candy before, one of the things that I thought about is that we have this cultural tradition of being really, really bad at talking about pleasure, talking yeah. about how we because there's something about conspiratorial theories and some of the stuff that goes viral that's just fun. It's just you know, it's it's like aesthetically pleasing. But we're so bad at talking about that, we're unable to sort that out from our sense of what's good and bad information. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, one of the things you got to look at. So I look at the flat earth community uh, a bit and um, the joy of flat earthers. is just it's just amazing. I wish I was that happy. Uh, but, you know, I'm not willing to believe the earth is flat to, 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 to get that happy. So, I'm well, I, yeah, I, probably, I, I think of the flying spaghetti monster people because they are so funny. You know, and they're and they're I mean, their joke is all about this. It's about like yeah. gullibility and things like that. But it's, yeah. it's, it's so it's just kind of. A, and then when I see it, that little chrome thing on the back of somebody's car that says FSM, I'm just like, oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and they, so, yeah. So that's an interesting that's an interesting um that's actually a really interesting comparison. So, the the flying spaghetti monster is obviously a, a, a you know wants to show the ridiculousness of other ideas, but tries to do it in a fun uh, in a fun way. And I, I do think that that's something we have to pay attention to uh, when we do this. How can people, you know, um, have a sense of joy when they're being uh, when they're you know quote unquote uh, debunking something or correcting something uh, versus feeling like a Debbie Downer? You know, and and uh, if we can't get there, if we can't if we can't fill that emotional need, um, we're going to be stuck. You know, there's, there's a few people. You know, there's some people on this planet that are willing to forgo the the emotional, um, you know, the emotional uh, uh, rewards uh, in order to to make things better. But you know, there's there's not as much as you might think, right? So. So we definitely, we definitely need to, we definitely need to attend to that and, and think about, you know, the emotional reasons why people uh, share this, uh, this misinformation, this disinformation, mm-hmm. and show them that they can still get that. I mean, that's the thing is, is maybe, maybe the story about Murdoch's vineyards isn't quite the beautiful, you know, uh, Schadenfreude that, uh, um, you know, that his house destroyed is, but it's still, it's still, it has most of it, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like two percent milk or something. Yeah, well, it's like I think it's also it's kind of like what what makes things like because I'm I'm a form content media literacy person, and yeah. you know to try to always go back to the form and see how the form is generating a certain kind of emotional reaction, which is what I think is the beautiful thing about something like the Onion, where you have this really short turnaround where you become aware of what's funny about it is how it looks just like real, but it's not, and and it's yeah. both of those things playing against each other. We we have a project. Um, I shouldn't say we. I'm I'm, I'm talking with uh, uh, Amy Collier about a, a Digipo project that she's doing all the work on uh, in Pinterest. And one of the things that they're going to look at primarily at health disinformation in Pinterest, uh, which is a big big problem. Um, a lot of stuff, you know, that kind of uh, you can cure cancer with avocados sort of stuff. Um, and uh, one of the things her students are looking at is what's the appropriate response to this. Like in, in the appropriate response of Pinterest is probably not posting a bunch of these images which create very emotional reactions in people along with debunking information because if you're just sort of amplifying the emotional reaction of people. So 
they're thinking about, is there a way to make spreadable or viral uh, good information that can flow through Pinterest and hopefully penetrate uh, some of these um, some of these communities? And I was lucky enough to talk to some people from uh, the Rita Allen Foundation um, um, in Philadelphia last uh, Friday, this past Friday. Wow. Uh, and... Um, and they, and they were talking about some of these, uh, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the places we can look for, for a lot of these answers is public health campaigns, which have been fighting misinformation for a long, long time. And actually there's a lot of research on, uh, how, you know, what sorts of messaging and what sorts of responses, uh, work in this. And, and there's also a, a lesson in public health campaigns. If you look at something like smoking, you know, it's not. It's not the cigarette tax that worked. It's not uh, the banning smoking in restaurants that worked. It's not the information that worked. Uh, it's not the social stigma that worked. It's not, you know, it's all of these things together, right? We all have a piece in this. Uh, and, and we can very easily get into this sort of thing like, well, you know, the economists are all like, well, you know, you just need a higher tax. You know, you don't need all this, you know, health literacy about cigarettes. And that's the health literacy people can get into thinking that the tax doesn't really change things, but ultimately it's, it's a complex social problem and it requires that we all work on it from, from different angles at, at, at once. Um, and so I, I've drifted off of my original thing. Oh, no, that, I think that's an interesting idea that, that it's, <laughs> that it's, cause I think I've always think about this when I think about like artificial intelligence and, and things like that, that it's not going to be a one-to-one thing. And if you, yeah. you know, uh, with like the CRISPR technology, if you make a genetic change in one place, it's going to have effects somewhere else you can't anticipate because things are connected in a really complex way. So, you, yeah. you know, it's not going to be a single answer that's going to, that's going to change these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's a complex social issue. It's it's not you know it's it's not a software bug you know. So so people have to work on their on their piece of it, but definitely the emotional piece of it and, and figuring out the emotional piece is is a big um, part of what we do. One of the things I'm looking at right now is uh, other countries and, and disinformation, misinformation in other countries, and and uh, I'm partially inspired by the. Um, you know, uh, you know, after the troubles in Northern Ireland, they rolled out a, a, a school curriculum that had a lot of units on the Arab-Israeli conflict, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, and that was smart. You know, that was really smart because what that allows students to do is outside of their own motivated reasoning, outside of their own identity protective behavior, they're able to look at the issues of how people come to hate one another. Uh, over uh, religion and culture and 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 so forth, and um, um, without talking about Catholics and Protestants, right? And so one of the things I'm 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 really interested in right now is uh, the Philippines um, and what's going on in the Philippines in terms of uh, misinformation, disinformation, and getting students to look at the Philippines and understand what's going on there. And get that level of understanding before we try to bring it back to our current political context where everybody is going to engage in this identity protective behavior, right? Um, so, th- so that's that's another piece, and that's kind of a that's kind of a newer piece to what we're doing in in, in uh, the digital polarization materials is thinking about how to route around um, the identity issues um, while giving students skills that are directly applicable and can come back. 
uh, to our current political problems, um, but only when they're, you know, only when they've, they've developed a, a sort of level of understanding um, that, that, you know, allows them to see it. I want to jump to a, a recent piece, what originally had made me think to reach out to you, uh, a Neiman Lab article right. that, that you had had written, uh, something that, that Neiman Lab does every year, sort of this uh, people predicting what's going to happen within media within the next uh, 365 days. And you talked about optimistic ways in which media literacy can be uh, improved through education and otherwise, but you also talked about commercial entities potentially invading the space as well. Would you mind walking through sort of the complexities that you're seeing as people start to look at how to uh, quote-unquote solve this media literacy crisis? Yeah, so my my take on our media literacy crisis is a lot of it... um, a lot of it has to do with a failure of media literacy and, and, you know, and not, you know, there's two ways to, to look at it. Well, people didn't get enough media literacy and if only they had enough media literacy, uh, they, they, you know, none of this would have happened. And, and I, you know, I, I can, I can see why some people might think that. And then we could look and we could say, well, you know, maybe people aren't getting the right media literacy. You know, the, the, the media literacy, that students often get through um, the media literacy that students often get through, uh, um, you know, through information literacy through the library or, um, you know, in the context of a course, it's just very print driven stuff. And, and it assumes that really the information that has come to you has already been vetted by someone, you know, some, some level, there's been some level of oversight into, you know, someone's bothered to purchase this book to put on the shelf. Someone has stocked this journal at the library. Uh, if you, um, you know, if you get online uh, and, and start to look at things, uh, you know, maybe you're looking in, in some of these journal databases or Google Scholar or something like that. Um, and there is some media literacy that talks to students about web resources and in and, and research on the web, but it doesn't in its methods, it doesn't necessarily break free of some of these print, this sort of print-based modality that we, we have in our, our heads, right? So one of the things we learned uh, when looking at fact-checkers in some recent research is fact-checkers, um, when they come to an article that is new to them, um, fact-checkers get off that page in about four seconds. They're looking at other pages. They're saying, what does, what does everybody say about this site I just landed on? You know what? What is this? Uh, what is this site about? Who owns it? Has there been any press coverage about this organization that is publishing this? Uh, what's their Wikipedia page say? Right. So they're off the page, and like they skim the page, and they're off the page in you know four seconds, six seconds. Um, students and faculty and historians and scholars come to the page, and they read it top to bottom, <laughs> and they start thinking about the page. Um, and they get horribly confused. I mean, they, they do horribly. Uh, you know, there was a test where um, historians were asked to look at two essays on 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 uh, uh, transgender uh, 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 kids and bullying, and um, say which which one came from a source that could be more trusted, right? And one came from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a sixty thousand 
person organization, like founded in the 1930s, flagship journal pediatrics, staff of 400, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one came from the American College of Pediatricians, which was a group formed in the 2000s to politically lobby that gay people shouldn't be able to adopt children. It has, I think, two employees, it has like 400 members, 500 members maybe. Um, and, it, and it even chose this name, uh, I'm pretty sure, to create confusion with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Like it's a classic sort of um, uh, astroturfing um, uh, sort of behavior. And, uh, and so you throw historians on that. 50% of historians couldn't tell that the, the American College of Pediatricians um, was a bogus group. 50% in five minutes, right? Uh, the fact checkers came in within 60 seconds. You know, most of them had had solved this. Um, and when we look at why that is, it's it's you know this is the idea that Sam Weinberg brings to the to the mix is the difference between vertical reading, which is what we show students how to do, versus you know a more networked practice practice, which is lateral reading. That before I start to read this page, I have to understand how this page is situated in the network, right? What does the network say about this page? Um, and then I can read, you know, and then I can look at it. Yeah, that's very, that's very reminiscent of, of uh, the idea from Nicholas Carr and the Shallows about how people have learned to approach knowledge differently, although he's very critical of it. Um, yeah. And kind of inside of that, that, that really important notion of pattern recognition. Um, which is actually a really important skill now to to be able to do what you're describing. Yeah, and so 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 Carr comes at this, and, and I, I actually thought Carr's book was interesting. I I, I, I um, you know I I, I I enjoyed the book, although I, I wouldn't I wouldn't attest to to a lot of it. But Carr comes at this, and his his take on this is more one of abstinence, right? That that uh, you know th this is what it's doing to our brains and uh, this is how confused people get on it. And this is why we shouldn't be doing things this way. And, and that's, you know, there's a point to be made there. I mean, I, I do think people might want to spend a little more time engaging in, 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 in uh, deep offline reading than they do. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's not where people live and it's not, people are not going to move off of line. And there's a lot of benefits to getting your information online through these networks. You start to see, you know, Twitter shows me perspectives that I would never see if I was just, you know, reading the newspaper. I, I have um, developed understandings of communities and, and uh, you know, uh, people and issues that I would never have seen without Twitter. And so I'm not going to throw out Twitter. Um, because I think, I think as, as much of a dumpster fire as Twitter is, it, it still provides something that's really essential to me in terms of broadening, um, broadening what I see. So I'm going to have to learn to live within that world for now until Twitter fixes some of these things, at least I'm going to have to live, li live within that imperfect world. And so, um, while I agree to some extent with the diagnosis of, of, of Carr, um, I don't agree with his prescription because his prescription is, well, you know, um, you know his, his prescription is, well, you know, just, uh, you know, just stop engaging in, in, in this behavior and, and go back to, you know, go back to doing things the way we did in, in, in 1950 and you'll be great. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's not a particularly 
I, I think that's not a particularly good solution. I think I think we give up too much. We give up the network, and we give up too much in that way. So we're going to have to learn to not be so befuddled uh, by these networks and by the manipulation and, and uh, stuff that we see on these networks. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. Um, ultimately, um, and people think I'm downing the web when I say a lot of these things, but no, no, I'm trying to, I actually like the web. I'm, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm I personally think you, you have one of the most optimistic viewpoints that I've ever heard. What attracts me to the method that you've sort of created is that uh, the web has to be a, a piece of this, right? Yeah. And I mean, what we want to do is we want to make the web livable, you know? I mean, it's not, you know, we're not, I'm not a love it, you know, there's not a love it or, you know, I feel like the people that think, well, the, this these sorts of criticisms of the web are anti-web, they're, they're kind of the love it or leave it people <laughs> of, of of web culture, right? Like, oh, well, you know, if you don't love it, you know, then, uh, you know, then, uh, then why are you still on it? Why are you still here? You know, and it's like, because it's my home, you know, because, because it's been, it's been so, so crucially a part of who I am and who I've become and of, of who my kids are and of my life experience. And, um, you know, it's affected everything in my life, um, in, in ways that are, that are, are, often incredibly beneficial. Uh, and, and for a while, when I was initially blogging uh, politically, I was really, I was, I was a techno-utopian, you know? And, and I really believed that this thing was gonna change the world. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more pessimistic about that now. Um, but, you know, it, it, like, like I said, it's, it's our home. So we've gotta, we've gotta make it better. Well, I think, I mean, you were right. It did change the world, right? <laughs> I mean, it did change the world. It, it's kind of, I, yeah. you know, Adam and I were talking a little earlier about, I don't know if you're, you have a next door site where you're at. Um, no. Are you familiar with them? They're these, uh, you know, micro local geographically centered discussion boards. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, there's a couple in the area where we live and I'm on it partly because I think it's kind of funny. Um, but also because it has a lot of really valuable information about lost dogs and cats, uh, yeah. which is really important stuff. And then a lot about house break-ins, which then you go, was this really broken into? It's like, well, no, I left it unlocked. So it's, you know, it's a, kind of have to decode a little bit. So I, I kind of like watching it, although I've also watching myself watch it. And Adam has decided he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. I just don't want to know my neighbors. Right, yeah. He doesn't want to know his neighbors. Um, yeah, right. So, but well, I, I mean, that, that is a problem, right? <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually, um, one of the things I did after Blue Hampshire was I created a site called Citizen Keen, which was a, um, was a hyper-local site for uh, the town of Keene, where I was at the time. It was like, uh, I forget, it was like 2009. I set this up. And... Um, and it was great for a while. Like it was, I, I got all these people on. It was a Ning community. That's how long ago it was. Um, but Fantastic Ning, name. Ning, I love it. Ning, um, Ning, is, Ning is underrated. I mean, I, I you know, weirdly, no, I, I will tell you Don't this. go there, Mike. I, I'm going to go. Next, I will defend the Zoom. Um, no, um, uh, Ning, Ning was underrated, I, I think. I think actually there was a a piece of what Andresen uh, was was seeing there was right, which was that if we're going to form online communities, you have to support the admins, right? You have to support the tools for the admins and levels of administration. 
Um, and you have to give them some power to keep those communities in shape, right? Versus uh, Facebook groups where the administrators of Facebook groups are powerless in the face of infiltration. And so, so we saw this in the, in the campaign where you have these groups of uh, Bernie Sanders uh, supporters uh, and, you know, and they, was, they would start to see this activity on their site, which was clearly infiltration of someone else. Of, uh, you know, we want to talk about it as Russian or whatever you, you want to talk about it. But clearly people trolling on the site. Yet their ability, you know, as administrators to deal with that, because Facebook is a community without any real community tools, um, was really limited. They couldn't look and see where are these people coming from, for example. Where are these IPs from? Uh, you know, uh, can we can we uh, can we ban these people uh, temporarily, right? Can we um, hide their? Can we set it up so that we can so that certain people will be in a class where their comments are initially hidden? Um, you know, uh, there's there's no moderation or administration tools comparable to what you would have on a 1980s BBS in in Facebook, right? And so Ning. Um, was the idea you know, the idea of Ning was a bunch of uh, you know uh, micro communities instead of one macro community um, where the focus was on giving administrators the tools that they needed to maintain their communities and prevent the sort of infiltration and trolling uh, that we saw in these um, in these communities over the election and so. Uh, you know, I don't often get to say that 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 uh, um, you know uh, <laughs> that Ning is right. No, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I mean I don't often get to you know I, I know it seems weird to be defending Ning, but I think it was actually it was actually more of a BBS influenced version of what the web would be that actually translated some of what we knew about BBS culture. Uh, to the web, whereas Facebook, you know, I feel like no one on Facebook has ever, ever been an admin uh, on a BBS. We we literally on Facebook, you know, people running these communities do not have access to to tools that were basic in 1989, in 1988, uh, for maintaining these communities. Um, and I, I think Ning did, you know. And so anyway, I had the Citizen Keen thing, and um, and uh, we got we got. Um, we got raided by, of course, um, a bunch of free stater, um, uh, libertarian, uh, misogynistic uh, jerks uh, who started harassing all the women on the site. I had a day job. I didn't have enough time to, to keep uh, adminning this stuff. Uh, the tools were there, but the time was not. And uh, I, had the, I had to shut down the site. Um, but it was the same, like in retrospect, it was the same you know, sort of, I don't know, the same sort of cocktail of, um, you know, libertarian misogynistic swill uh, that, you know, has, has polluted the larger uh, internet. So at that, at that time, Facebook wasn't really a, a hyper-local destination for people. Um, but as, as it's become that, uh, we've seen the same same stuff. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to get a Ning hot take, but I, I'll take that as a gift. Um, I, so I want to. Also, end... the Zoom, the Zoom was very durable. It was very durable <laughs> at the time when the iPod screen was was cracking. I uh, so we've been we've been ending uh, some of these interviews talking about 
how we how we think about next year, what we've done this year as well. We're we're wrapping up 2017. Um, you could make arguments that the world has changed. You could make arguments that uh, the per- your perception of the world has changed uh, potentially as well, and, and nothing's actually changed. But just I, if you wouldn't mind me asking like a personal question, how do you feel that you have personally changed over 2017? Oh, wow. It's deep. Um, <laughs> you, you know... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know th- things kind of go in in cycles, um, and and a lot of it is um, a lot of it is about you know how you see yourself, and and I kind of vacillate uh, between I think a very theoretical approach to things and a very activist approach to things, and. You know, and I enjoy I enjoy both. Um, and and interestingly, when I'm when I'm in one situation, I'm sometimes frustrated with the other side. You know, when you're an activist, you're like, you know, quit it with all this, quit it with all this uh, endless talking. Like, let's let's do something. When you're when you're more on the theoretical side, um, you're like, you know, look at all these people rushing in to do things, and, and they haven't you know fully thought things out. Um, and I think it's made. I think it's pulled me towards the activist side of, of what I do. And and um, that's not. That's not. I mean, I think very carefully about what I do. I think most of what I do is is is, you know, theoretically grounded uh, and uh, thoughtful. Um, but ultimately, what matters at the end of the day is. Um, is whether we have an impact on 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 people's lives and and um, and just the relentless focus on that and the tuning out of people, frankly, that you know that maybe want to prove a particular you know intellectual point that that they've been arguing for a while at the expense of of getting things done. And that sounds all vaguely coded and subtweety, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I would say the thing that it has done is it, it has, it has, it has pulled me back into an activist, uh, mindset, uh, which is maybe less theoretically pure, uh, but, uh, is more engaged with the difference that we can make in people's lives. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Really appreciate it, and appreciate the work uh, that you're doing as well. As I as I mentioned earlier, I'm uh, I, have a, I have a deep affection for the 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 optimism that has really started to kind of come out of the things that you've been working on uh, most recently. Not that you were never optimistic, uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but I'm really enjoying uh, seeing the space that you're playing yeah. right now. Well, uh, every day I get up, choose life. <laughs> <laughs> and it only takes 90 seconds to decide that right? eight minute abs <laughs> <laughs> all right well if your theory turns out to be true um media in the end of the world the, the the podcast name will have to change because he doesn't think we're, we're as close as we think we are well yeah. <laughs> okay all right i guess we'll see which one is right, in the yeah. end. <laughs> all right. All right. thank you okay.